Okay, Bruchem Abayim. Welcome everybody. Thank you for the opportunity to share a few thoughts before Purim Ba'alinu L'Taiba. There are three words in Tanakh that appear in three junctures, and these are the only time these three words appear. The word that I'm speaking about is the word Vinishma, and it will be heard. Vinishma. It says regarding Megillah Sester, Vinishma Piskam Hamelech Asher Yaase. The, the edict of the king will be heard. It says regarding Tefillah, Vinishma Koloi Bevoyel Akoidesh, and the voice of the Kohen Gadol as he's walking through the Heichal will be heard as the bells on the bottom of the hem of his tunic will ring. And then it says regarding the learning of Torah and the acceptance of Torah, Naase, Vinishma. Three times it says the word Vinishma. Says the Balaturim, this is a remez, this is a hint to the following halacha. When you have a conflict between two mitzvahs, the Avoidah and the Beis HaMikdash, Tefillah, and Mikro Megillah, which mitzvah has precedence? Mikro Megillah, why? Because on the one hand, Vinishma Koilai, Tefillah. On the other hand, Vinishma Piskam HaMelech, Megillah Sester. So which one do you do? Vinishma Piskam HaMelech, Kirabahi. It's greater. Megillah Sester is greater. If you have a conflict between Talmud Torah, Nasa Vinishma, and Megillah Sester, Vinishma Piskam HaMelech, what do you do? Let's say somebody's in the middle of learning. Do they have to interrupt their learning to hear the Megillah? Absolutely. Why? Because Megillah Sester is more important. How do I know? Nasa Vinishma Torah, but Vinishma Piskam HaMelech, Kirabahi. Talmud Torah is greater Miguel Sester is greater than Talmud Torah. In fact, if you look in the Gemara, the one who says that Mikra Megillah is greater than Torah and greater than the Avoidah is Rabbah, Kirabahi. Rabbah was the one who said it. That is the comment of the Balaturim. And then the Balaturim adds one incredible word that perhaps we would glance over. The Balaturim writes, Odif Mikra Megillah mi Torah ume Avoidah. Mikra Megillah is greater. Now, is that really the case? Can we say that Mikra Megillah is greater than Torah? Are you allowed to put a Megillah on top of a Chumash? You can't put Nevi'im Ksud on top of a Chumash. So what exactly does the Baal Torah mean that Mikra Megillah is greater than the Torah, is greater than Avoida? There's a very mysterious line of the Chassam Soifer. Chassam Soifer writes in his Drashos, and if the Chassam Soifer didn't say this, who could possibly make such a statement? The holy light contained in Megillah Sester is greater than the light of the Torah itself. I mean, who could have said such a thing? Is Rus greater than the Torah? Is Kohelis greater than the Torah? Uh, any of the Nevi'im greater than the Torah? And yet the Chassam Soifer writes... The light contained in Megillah Esther is literally greater than the light of the Torah itself. So fasten your seatbelts, which are going to begin today's shir to try to get some level of understanding of this concept that the light in Megillah Esther is more spectacular, more brilliant than the light of the Torah itself. The Medrash tells us that there are five things in this world that are a noivel, a semblance, a me'ain of the real thing. So the Medrash says that sleep is a semblance of death. 
And the Medrash says that dreams are a semblance of prophecy. And Shabbos is a noivel of Olam Haba. And the Medrash continues, the sun is a noivel of the supernal, supernatural light. And then the Medrash says, the Torah is a noivel of Chachmah Yana. The Torah is a semblance of the wisdom on high, which which completely destroys all normative thinking. Because we're, we tend to think the Torah is the wisdom of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There's nothing more supernatural, nothing more elevated, sublime, holy than the Torah itself. And yet the Medrash says, the Torah is a noivel of the Chachma al So what exactly does that mean? So just to simplify on our level, that means very, very uh, simply, the Torah that we read today that we learn, that we study, is the Torah that Hashem has allowed to filter down into this world so that our minds of flesh and blood can have some level of recognition and understanding of the wisdom of Hashem. But the wisdom of Hashem in its most raw form is not the Torah that we read, Bereshiz Barelikim. There is a dimension, an entity called Chachma El Yaina, that in the Shamayim is in its raw form, and Hashem allows it to filter down and diffuse and relate to us, to our mayach of So now the million dollar question is, is there any body of information? Is there any book? Is there any entity that is not the diffused version of the Torah, but is literally the raw chachma of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as it appears in the Shamayim? And the answer is, yeah, there's one book. Megillah Esther. Megillah Esther is the Chachma Ha'alyoina itself, undiffused, unmasked, but nobody would know. This is not a book you're going to fully grasp and understand. This book is beyond, above and beyond human comprehension. This is the raw wisdom of Hashem itself, and that is why Mivatlin Tamatoira, to hear the Megillah, because the Megillah in a way is greater than the Torah itself. I'm sure many of you have heard, and I think uh, I spoke about it maybe last year or two years ago or three years ago, some of the Megillah codes. How if you look in the Ten Sons of Haman, you have these small letters, you have the small tuft, the small shin, the, the small zayin, and that's a reference to another historical time where ten sons of Haman were killed and ten Nazis were killed, and a prediction, a prophetic prediction to the Nuremberg trials of the year Tuf Shin Zayin, and somebody once commented to me, hearing, here you have, in the, you have a book that you could open up today. And I was just in Cincinnati, I spoke in Cincinnati, so I went, don't tell anybody, to a place, Hebrew Union College, which is the biggest Jewish library in this end of the world, where they have um, manuscripts of Rishonim and Achroinim, and I asked them to see their collection of Megillois. So... These, this Tavshin Zion is not what the rabbis decided to do in 1947. They decided to make those three words small. For 2,000 years, you have three letters, Tavshin Zion, small. And now we could go to Shul, 2022, and we could read a document that 2,000 years ago predicted when 10 Nazis are going to hang. I mean, this is, if there's any information in the Tarak Doisha that screams out, Rebina Sham is talking, hello everyone, it's me, I'm pulling the strings, I make everything happen, I run history, it's Megillah Esther, why is this in Esther? 
Why isn't it in Yehoshua, Shoiftim, Shemais? The answer is Megillah Esther is Chachma Ho'elyon. It's the raw wisdom directly from HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the most unbelievable form. And that is why every detail of Megillah Esther is so precise. I'll give you a few examples. So you have 166 psukim in Megillah Esther, corresponding to 119 words in there are two places in Chumash we read about Amalek. In Parshas B'Shalach, we're going to read it on Purim. And Parshas Kiseitse, we're going to read it the Shabbos, Shabbos Sacham. 119 words in B'Shalach about Amalek. 47 words in Kiseitse about Amalek. 166 words about Amalek in the Chumash. 166 psukim in Esther. How many times is Haman in the Megillah? 54. 54 times. One time, Memuchan. How many times is Esther in the Megillah? 54. One time, Hadassah. Zel Umazah. How many times, Mordechai? 58. Zeresh, 4. So, Haman, 54. Zeresh, 4. 58 Mordechai. Every name is, there's an equilibrium, is precise, is exact. By the way, we're going to add to the davening of um, Purim, we're going to say, "Bimei Mordechai ve'Esther b'Shushan Habira." How many words will be in that paragraph? Fifty-four. How many letters in the Ten Sons of Haman? Fifty-four. That's why the Rambam Shem says, "Ki machay." You know what? I'll wipe out Emche. Emche's gematria fifty-four. I'm going to wipe out the fifty-four letters in the names of Haman and the fifty-four names Haman appears in the Megillah, and that's why we say Shema. How many words in Kriya Shema to be Mavata Amalek? Fifty-four. And that is why the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud, the root of it is Dalet, Nun, Don, Anoichi, Tvimavatel, Midas, Adin, of Amalek. So every detail of the Megillah is weighed, is measured. There are going to be secrets in the Megillah. The year 1648-1649 is predicted, and we discussed that in the past. I want to speak about two subjects, two more subjects. Let's talk about Esther. The subject of Esther, to me, is one of the most painful subjects in the whole Torah. Everybody thinks it's a happy story. It's the most tragic story in the entire corpus of the Torah. You have a lady. She's a tzadikas. She's beautiful. She's a neviah. I mean, she has a bright career ahead of her. What happens? The moment she's conceived, her father dies. Talk about mazel. Yeah? That's a go- she's off to a good start. The moment she's born, her mother dies. Right? It says, Uvemoisa via, it says, Vayihi oimeines hadasah. He asked her about to die. Ki einla avoim. Uvemoisa via viman. The Gemara asks, We already know she has no father and mother. Why does it have to repeat And when her father and mother died? Says the Gemara. When she was conceived, her father died. When she was born, her mother died. Ah, oh, but at least she gets a good shidduch. So, the Shadchan says, I have the best guy in Shushan. He's a member of the Anshe Knesset Hagdoila. And he's a Navi. Who? Mordechai. So she marries her cousin, Mordechai. But the only thing is, Mordechai says, listen up. Until now, you were mutter to me because Achashverosh took you against your will. But from now on, from now on, you're going to go to Achishosh Baratzain, and now you, you, you're you usher to me. 
So she lost her father. She lost her mother. She lost her husband. And it's not like she was going to Chachmas Nashim Shirim at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. What's she doing all day? She's in the palace with a behema gasa achashverosh. I mean, I'm not going to get into the details of his personal behavior. That would not be uh, my place right now. But suffice it to say, he wasn't a great guy. And what about nachas from children? She had no nachas. She had no Jewish children. She had a, a kid, Darius, who grew up like a Persian. So she has no father. She has no mother. She has no husband. And she has no children. Wow, what a, what a beautiful life. And all of Chal Yisrael, they're dancing like Yudamay Sa'ira, and they're laying in the Megillah, and they're giving out Shalach Manis, and she's sitting there like a Yesoyma, Almana, Galmuda, no family, no friends, no Jewish life, no spiritual legacy. Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu arrange things, and who are we to ask why Hashem gave somebody a certain set of life experience? That's Kiloi Machshavoisai Machshavoiseichem. But still, perhaps there's something we could glean from this very lonely, solitude state that this Jewish heroine found herself in. And perhaps we could suggest as follows. There's a very poignant account of a woman in 1492. This is brought in the Sefer Todos Adam of Zamala Velazhen, who uh, during the time of the Spanish Inquisition, the... Uh, church came and they took away her children and now she's left, left and at the funeral she cried out and she says God Almighty I always loved you I always loved you but my love to you was split with the love I have for my children but now that I have no son and now that I have no daughter now my heart is completely free to give over all of the Ava in my heart only to you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That is what is recorded in the Sefer of Taldai Sadam of Rabzamla of Elijah. And when the Chafetz Chaim lost his child, Rabbi Abram, so the Chafetz Chaim did not exhibit emotion, the Chafetz Chaim got up at the Levaya, and the Chafetz Chaim said, he said, Reboiner Shalom, Ha'ahava, Shahafti, Adata Estani, the love that until now I loved my son. Harini Moisar Mayata Lacha, I give it to you. So on the one hand, certainly it's not a pleasant life circumstance to be alone in this world, not to have a husband, not to have children, not to have family. It's a very difficult matzav, but that was the that was the matzav that Esther found herself in. But on the other hand, being in such a situation can provide a certain madriga that if somebody is able to elevate themselves, ba'avas Hashem, they can then give over and be moiser their entire existence, their entire being, their entire mahus to love Hakadosh Baruch Hu with every fabric, with every fiber of their being. We know the yomtiv of Purim in a certain way, elevated Klai Yisrael to the highest madrega they were ever on in their history. The Gemara tells us that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu offered us the Torah, basically, Amar Rav Abdimi, Barchama Barchasa, Melamed Shekafa Aleim Har You know what that means? God offered us the Torah, and we said, thanks, but no thanks. No thank you. 
So Hashem said, really? No, thank you. He took the mountain, he suspended it over our heads, and he said, either take the Torah, or you're dead meat, or you die right here. So he said, oh, okay, yeah, 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 great, great. We, we, we love the Torah. But we had no interest in it. And therefore the Gemara says, Mikan that if we ever don't keep the Torah, we have an opt-out clause. If God cannot hold us accountable to keep the Torah, because we could say we never wanted it in the first place. Until when? When in Jewish history? Did Kal Yisrael actually accept the Torah? Biahava. Purim. Amarava. Hadar We accepted the Torah willingly in the time of Purim. So the Medrash asked, what do you mean? But I thought we said Nasa Nishma. I thought we accepted it willingly from the beginning. So the Medrash says, we accepted the written law willingly. We did not accept the oral law until the times of Purim. Okay, so if you wanted to know what happened in the times of Purim, we were Makabel, the Divrei Chachomim, Ba'ahava in the times of Purim. Now you have to know a little secret about the Tarsha Pad. There's a difference between Tarsha B'chsav and Tarsha Pad, the Medrash says. You can learn it. It's finite. You open it up. You learn Bereshis. You learn Shemais. You learn Vayikra. You learn Bamidbar. While you're learning it, you can nibble on some uh, little tangerine. And you can have the fan blowing on you. And you could, you know, sit back like that and relax. The Tarsha B'chsav does not require one's entire entity be immersed in it in order to make heads or tails of what's going on. But says the Medrash, when it comes to the Tarsha B'chsav, it's kasha, kisha, oil, kina. It is brutal. It is very difficult to learn Tarsha Peh. And only someone who loves HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and is completely immersed in his moisture nefesh, only such a person can have understanding of the Tarsha Peh. So in order to understand Tarsha Peh, you need to love HaKadosh Baruch Hu with your entire being. Who was the catalyst? who elevated Klal Yisrael to the level that we were able to makabel the oral law, Biahava, Esther. How was she able to do it? Possibly because she was the only Kli, she was the, the vessel, who she had nothing in life. She had no father, she had no mother, she had no children, she had no husband. Her heart was a, a Mayon HaMeskaber, an ever-flowing fountain of Avas HaKadosh Baruch Hu, only HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and nothing else, and that overflowed and that influenced the rest of Klal Yisrael to be propelled to the great level to accept the Torah Shabbat Peh, that in order to learn it, what is required is to love HaKadosh Baruch Hu, V'chal Libay, V'chal Nafshay, V'chal Ma'idai. I want to revisit something that I spoke about in the past with uh, a few... Uh, unbelievable insights. One of them um, occurred to me Friday night, and the other one I remembered, and as a Hashem, I think this will be very timely. If you remember at the very end of Megillah Sester, this is one of my favorites. This is like my classic uh, go-to insight on the Megillah, but I want to use it as a Pesach to explain uh, certain historical events and what's going on in the world today. Yeah, the Megillah ends, you know, you would think the Megillah would end with like a grand finale. Not only did Mordechai ride on the royal horse, 
But Achashverosh gave him his personal jet, and Mordechai is flying high, and there's like he's there. The plane is riding in the sky. And Mordechai, number one. I mean, what? How would you, would you think the, the Megillah would end? You know how the Megillah ends? Achashverosh taxes the people. Wow, what a dramatic ending! What a what a powerful ending! Achashverosh taxes the people. So in the past, we mentioned that really. This is the grand finale, and this is the sum, and this is the pinnacle, the whole Purim story, because the whole theme of Purim is how HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I don't need your man in office, and I don't mean your man in the White House to bring about what I want to accomplish. You give me the biggest Russia in the world. You give me his plans, and I will co-opt, and I will hijack his plans and bring about salvation for the Jewish people. And the prime example is, the Pasuk says, Who's in the courtyard? Haman was coming to the outer courtyard of the king to tell the king Haman was coming to hang Mordechai on the tree that literally Haman was preparing for him for Mordechai but the Gemara asks obviously Haman was preparing it for Mordechai why does it have to say for him just say on the tree that he was preparing so the Gemara says no he wasn't preparing it for Mordechai he was preparing it for himself because ultimately that big eyesore that monstrosity of a tree that Haman thought would catch the eye of this wishy-washy king and in a fit of rage without thinking he would say about Mordechai hang Mordechai so on that Faithful day when Achashirish got angry at Haman and Chavonah said, why don't you hang him on the tree? Achashirish was able, he didn't have to call a contractor. The tree was staring him in the face. He said, okay, just knock him off. So Haman made the tree for himself. Because you have to hire a contractor, this hanging is going to take place in about 37 and a half years. You know, like they say in, in Russia, the, um, if you buy a car in Russia, so what do you do? You, you uh, give them the money and you get the car... Ten years later, yeah? So you, the guy came to the store, to the dealership, he put down the money, so the guy says, um, okay, very good, and it's mark on your calendar, in ten years, the car will arrive. He says, morning or afternoon? <laughs> he says, what do you mean? Uh, well, what, it's ten years from now. He said, no, 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 the plumber's coming in the morning, <laughs> right? So if you have to hire a contractor, then this is not happening. It's only because the tree was standing, staring him in the face. And we explained in the past how every one of Haman's plans and schemes and machinations came back to backfire, to boomerang against him. And the greatest example we gave was the example of Achashverosh taxing the people. Because if you look and say for Ezra, you remember this? No? I'll say the whole shir again. I'll come back next year, I'll do it again. I'm just telling you one point, okay? If you want to know the whole shir, there's something called TorahAnytime.com. You know about that? Just telling you one point. You look in Sefer Ezra, the Jewish people were returning about a decade after the Purim story, and they come to, re- to Eretz Yisrael, and they want to rebuild the temple, and they cannot afford to rebuild the temple, so they turn to their king, Darius, and they say, Darius, we can't afford to build a temple. So Darius said, what do you want from me? Make a Chinese auction, make a charity campaign, make, you know. They said, no, they didn't invent those yet. Maybe you could help us out. So the Pasuk says that Darius opened up the treasury of the king, and he opened up all the tax treasuries, and he funded the construction of the second Beis HaMikdash. 
And we asked, where did Darius get all this tax money from to build the second base Hamikdash? And the answer is, That's why the Megillah ends off that by the end of the story, not only were the Jews saved, but Achashverosh is taking their money away, and ultimately Achashverosh is funding the construction of the second base. That's like the pinnacle of the Purim miracle. And we explain that while the story opens up, that Achashverosh is having a party. What's he celebrating? That the 70 years are up, and the Beis has not been rebuilt. And he said, if the 70 years are up, then the Beis will never be rebuilt. So the story begins, Achashverosh is... is, is celebrating the eternal destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. By the end of the story, Ahasuerus has become the chief financer of the second Beis HaMikdash. And the Yerushalayim is looking down in Hashanai, and the Yerushalayim says, you think this party is celebrating the Beis HaMikdash will never be rebuilt? At this party, you can get angry at Vashti, and you can have her executed, and you can have a beauty contest. And you're going to marry Esther. And she's going to have a Darius. And he's going to take away all your money. You think this party is celebrating destruction? This party is building the second base Hamikdash. That's why in the second base Hamikdash there should be a big plaque. This base Hamikdash was built by Achashverosh. Fine. We already said this. I'm just reminding you what you should remember. No, if you don't remember, it's great. It's good for me. Okay? So... Now I want to add to that, because, you know, it's very nice when you read a book in the VM and you say, oh, well, look how Hashem is using the enemy to bring salvation to the Jewish people. It's like, we look at the book, and then we live life like that's a fairy tale, but this doesn't actually happen in real life. So I want to bring to your attention a few historic episodes, just that we should be aware that this is how the Yibam Shem works at Hayyan. August 2nd, Tishabab. King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella have almost completed their mission of reconquesta, of reconquering the entire Iberian Peninsula. They have rid it from any uh, Muslim influence. Now it is entirely Christian, and they have banished the Jewish people after hundreds of years of the Golden Age of Spain. And King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, they said, you know, this is a great offering to our God. We finally have destroyed the Jewish people. We've banished 300,000 Jews. There will never be a homeland for the Jewish people. There will never be a haven for the Jewish people. They thought that, was, that would be the end of us. But we have an account in the archives of Seville of a cabin boy who is on a boat being taken to be a slave in Africa who records that on August 2nd, Tishabab, as his boat was leaving the dock, he saw three boats parked in the harbor. The Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, which were financed by King Fernand and Queen Isabella for Columbus and many Muranos, so that they should discover the new world. And the Yvonne looks down from Shamayim and he says, you think the Jewish people will not, won't have a haven? Spain will be nothing compared to Flatbush, far <laughs> apart. You think that there will never be a country to have a, a golden Medina where the Jewish people will be successful financially, socially? You think Spain would be the only homeland for the Jewish people? 
No, not only will I allow America to, to gro- be groomed and blossom into the great homeland of the Jewish people until Adam Yemais HaMashiach, you're going to be the one to discover it. You're going to be the one to finance it. You're going to be the one to pay for it. And once you've paid for it, and you sent enough people there, they're going to rebel against you and create the United States of America, and there's going to be Lakewood. <laughs> you didn't know that on Beis Medrash Gavoya, there should be a plaque for King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. In the Mir Yeshiva, who built Flatbush? Who built Borough Park? Who built Williamsburg? The Spanish Inquisition. In the 19th century, people think that the biggest anti-Semites, the biggest sign in Israel, were the Germans. Yeah, could be. But they have a close rival. In the 19th century, the Russian government imposed such harsh decrees against the Jewish population that they were going to solve the Jewish problem in a three-step plan. Exterminate one-third of the Jews, Convert one-third of the Jews to the Russian Orthodox uh, Church and banish the, the last third. That is why, until uh, 1920, two million Jews left Russia. I mean, it was unbearable. They killed a third of their population, they converted a third, and they banished a third. Stalin, people think, oh, the Germans invented systematic extermination of the Jewish people. No, they didn't. It's not true. It's not true at all. You know who invented it? The Soviets. But you think you get anything done in, in Russia? It took forever. They weren't good at it. The, the, the Germans came and they perfected the concentration camp. But they didn't invent the concentration camp. And this was invented by the Soviets. And in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, and until the fall of the Iron Curtain, the Soviet Union was the chief sponsor of Arab aggression against the state of Israel. So they, you can make the case that the greatest enemy against the Jewish people in the last 200 years is Mother Russia. They make a very strong case. Throughout the 19th century, throughout the 20th century, whether it was expulsion, forced conversion, the Cantonist era, communism, funding Arab aggression... And the Yavon Shalom looks down in the Shalmai and he says, hmm, who am I going to use as my tool and my instrument to create a place in the Middle East to recognize a state that the Jewish people can have where they can live in peace and build yeshivas and pave the way, Be'ezus Hashem, we hope, for the coming of Mashiach. You know, in 1947... Israel was losing the war. They had no ammunition until Stalin got in his head that the Jewish state is, they're they're socialist, so they'll probably be communist. And I don't like Britain in the Middle East. What are they doing? They're too close for comfort. So Stalin funded the war of independence. And that was the turning turning point in the war. And when it came to UN resolution, besides the United States, Russia was the first to vote to endorse the state of Israel. Why them? It has to be them. Because that's the way the Rebbein Shem operates. The Rebbein Shem never allows our friends to support us. No, no, Rebbein Shem says, give me more credit 
than needing your friends and your allies to support you. I'm going to take the Haman, and I'm going to take the Sunni Israel, and I'm going to take the Oyev, and they're going to fund your wars, and they're going to build your base on Mikdash, and they're going to ratify your country. Because that's the way the Rebbe Sham operates. This is the manner of Hashkacha Pratis that is evident in the Galas. And the students of the Vilna Gaon explain as follows. You know, when we live in the Galas, there are no open miracles. HaKadosh Baruch is not going to split the sea for us. Rosh is not going to make Choshech, Makas Choshech for us. So how do we know the Rebbe Hashem is there? Says Nachas David, it is this specific manner of Hashkacha, which is the most open display of the Rebbe Hashem's control over history and the destiny of the Jewish people, where the Rebbe Hashem takes the enemy and the plan of the enemy, and the Rebbe Hashem puts into Stalin's head that the Jewish state will be communistic so that he should fund the war of independence? You know, after, um, in the 50s, Stalin saw what's going on with Israel. They're socialists, but they're not communists. So Stalin said, okay, we got to kill all of them. And Stalin put into place a systematic plan, do you know this? To destroy and annihilate Two to four million Jews in Russia by the end of 1953. And it started with, uh, he made up trumped up charges against seven doctors, and he incarcerated them. And from then he was going to take the, all the Jews of Russia and move them to Siberia. And then he had a stroke, suddenly, on Purim. Stalin had a stroke on Purim. In 1953, and two to four million, he was strong as an ox before then. Rabbi Yitzhak Zilber, he writes, people would tell, um, he was already incarcerated, he was in prison, he was in, in a labor camp, and uh, people had, were miyuash. They thought that was the end of Judaism in the Soviet Union, and he said, no. He said, he did, Stalin is only Basar Vadam. You don't know what will be with him in an hour. And 30 minutes later, he had a stroke. Purim, 1953. Don't say it on camera, but thank you. Okay? <laughs> so, we don't always understand the direction of events. Sometimes we get anxious, we get caught up. Who's in power? Who's the premier? Who's the prime minister? Who's the president? What is his... What is his policy? It's irrelevant. You know, very interesting. The Gemara Masech Tuchulan asks, Haman Minatoyro Minayan. Very good. Esther Minatoyro Minayan. Mordechai Minatoyro Minayan. And the Gemara forgot one of the central characters of the poem story. Achashveroish Minatoyro Minayan. You ever wonder that? The Gemara doesn't ask. Where in the world is Achashverosh? So my son Yehuda, he said, you think it's going to say Achashverosh in the Chumash? It's too long. You know? <laughs> but really, why Why does it say Achashverosh? Why does the Gemara not ask? And you know, in Shoshana Siakoy, we give editorial comments about all the characters of the Prophet. Mordechai, yay! Baruch Mordechai, Brucha Esther, Aror Haman, Arura Zeresh. And Chavayna, we also, you know, we can't just, Chavayna is Achor Latoiv. What happened to Achashverosh? What happened to the guy? The answer is he's completely irrelevant. 
the prime minister, the president, the king, the premier is irrelevant. The moment someone is voted into power, they've abdicated their inherent existence. You know what they are? They are merely pawns in the hand of the one above. Achashveirosh minatoyrah minayin. He ain't there. Hamelech. There's only the king above. And that's what we have to understand as we're living through history. And we see Achashveirosh. We see these figures again, history repeating itself. Take a deep breath. Rely on But take a deep breath. Sit down. Watch the show. We are vouchsafed that there are coming attractions for the Jewish people. And we're all misfollow every Matzai Shabbos. The Megillah is the source of all Jewish salvation, and we hope that Ezra Hashem, just like in times of Purim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought an end. What's Achashverosh called? A beer! So Hashem has knocked out a big beer before. Ezra Hashem, Kain, Tihi Alanu, Afrelechem Purim. Thank you. If anybody is interested in the new Sefer on Purim, the Concealed and the Revealed, it's available for sale in the back. And Mr. Mrs. Goldman is going to give it another plug. <laughs> yes, I will. It's really good. It includes this material. Um, this-